Stand by for a start. Racing. At $210,000 at Isella Done. Well done. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of The Shortness, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia. And this podcast is brought to you by our fantastic sponsors, IRT and Stable Financial. Joining me today to discuss all things relevant to spring and also to a group of imports we've been used to seeing at spring carnivals, but not so much in recent years, and they are the Japanese, uh, Duncan Ramage from DGR Thoroughbred Services and the newest member of the FBAA, Satomi Oka from Satomi Oka Bloodstock. Duncan, Satomi, a big welcome to both of you. Thank you, Mick. It's nice to be back. Thank you, Mick. It's nice to be here with Satomi. Thank you, Mick. And thanks, Duncan. Nice to join you guys. So, Toby, before we get started, as the newest member of the FBAA and the newest uh, addition, I guess, to the Shortlist podcast, some listeners will, will know your work with Inglis very well. But can you give us a bit of a brief background to how you got involved in the bloodstock and, and racing industry and what areas you specialise in? I started riding from a young age. I'd never be a good competitor, but I've always had a love of horses and Yes, and I joined Australian Trade Commission after um, college, and that's how I met John Masara, Arthur Inglis, Reg Inglis, and um, I started learning about the trade between Australia and Japan, and that's how I got into it. It's a great industry like that, isn't it, Duncan? We can recruit talented people who just have an interest in, in a horse, and it doesn't have to necessarily be the thoroughbred, but they see something they like in the industry as Satomi did, and, and we are the beneficiaries of their expertise uh, from there on. Indeed, there's many avenues of scope that people who get into our wonderful industry, industry can go, you know, and you don't have to come in at the top, you can come in on the end of a pitchfork, um, but so many opportunities, and I think it's important that the industry spreads the word of what you can actually become and where you can go and how you go about it, or just the, the openings are endless. And that's coming from the mouth of a, uh, a former amateur jockey, which you were. Well, actually, it was an apprentice jockey, not an amateur, but yes. I well, was, even better. When I was 15, 16, 17, yes, I was riding in some races. I love getting you on the podcast, Duncan, because you've got that, for, for obviously, the, the listeners can't hear, but you've got a beautiful painting up behind you of So You Think winning a Cox Plate. Do you ever sort of glance at that and think, if I just stuck with it a bit longer, that might have been me one day winning a Cox Plate in the saddle? Oh, uh, Henry Plumtree always builds me up that I was going to be some star apprentice. So I let him run with that. But I think <laughs> in truth, I was not going to be Lester Piggott and I'm probably going to be about two stone too heavy. Hey, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And Correct. there's there's plenty of good stories and and I guess a, a storied history of the Japanese racing and breeding industry. And that's our topic today, given your experiences, Satomi and, and Duncan, and your expertise in the area. And given how successful Japanese horses have been during the Melbourne Spring Carnival in you know, pretty much the last, or uh, well, more than a decade, uh, I thought it was well worthwhile um, having a look at the evolution, I guess, of modern racing and breeding in Japan. And Satomi, it's something I'm really fascinated in as far as the modern landscape of Japanese racing is concerned. And I guess that things really started to change with the formalization of 
the JRA, the Japan Racing Association, in 1954, and then a year later with the Japan uh, Blood Horse Breeders Association. Those two organisations have been critical to the path that the, the jurisdiction has, has taken, haven't they? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, yes, JRA is running races in Japan and the JBBA is bringing all um, stallions from overseas to improve the Japanese breeding industry. Um, yes, they both are very important um, organisations in Japan. What's the difference between the, the JRA and, and the NRA? I, I guess Australians will sort of be familiar with, with both organisations, but can you just explain how they operate within Japanese horse racing? JRA um, has 10 race courses throughout Japan and um, NAR is actually run by a local government and um, the prize money is very different from JRA to NAR. NAR courses are all dirt courses, um, probably up to 18, 2,000 metres um, in distance. And the JRA, it's got um, from 1,200 metres to um, 3,600 metres, I think, was the longest I think, the races in Japan. The other difference is it's sort of JRA is more the elite racing, isn't it? It's the it's the premium product. Uh, yes, yes, JRA has is is the premium. Yeah, at the tri- uh, prize money is so good consistently from the maiden races to the Group One races, and that's the race. The JRA race is the one, the races that the, all the owners want to win. Those of us listening that haven't been to a, a Japanese race meeting, and I, I certainly haven't been. And let's talk about the, the premium product, the JRA. We see it on TV, Japan Cup Day and Yasuda Kinen, those bigger meetings. But what's an average day at the races like in Japan? What sort of people attend? What's what's the race day atmosphere like? A lot of punters. As very Race courses are very different. Once you get in, there are lots of punters um, actually um, with a newspaper or tablets. They are punting at the races, a race course, and owners have an owner's section, but it's not like a, a race course in Australia that you see dining sections and entertaining sections. Um, there are restaurants in race courses, but they're not for entertainment. Big race days, it's amazing that the, all the punters go outside and a chair for um, all the horses coming into the course. and that the noise that they make is probably well known that you probably a lot of people probably seen uh, or heard um, on the Twitter or social media. Um, yeah, it, it is quite exciting if you go to a group one meeting. Duncan, you've been to Japanese race meetings. What the fan engagement, you know, that that connection with the sport and also the punt. It's so obvious. In, how did you see it in your experience? Well, it's Starts off with about a three-hour bus ride from Tokyo to Fuchu because there's so many people trying to get there. You know, there's 100,000 people out the front of the grandstand, not out the back, out the front, actually engaged, watching the race, waving their race books, cheering. It's, it's, it's quite a spectacle. Um, I've been there, obviously, on some international days, so they put on some hosting in a, in a room for the internationals, but um, the, the participant, is, as at home, is just uh, outlined, they're into the races. They're trying to back their winners and they do a lot of combination bets and all this sort of thing, but they're, they're into the sport of the racing. They're not there to find dine or do any of that sort of stuff. They, they do that at home or at restaurants. It's, it is about the racing. 
it seems a little bit like, and watching from afar, it seems a little bit like an English Premier League crowd. They're very parochial and there's that investment with the betting, but there's also the investment in the horses, the little teddies and anybody who follows Sue Ann Kaur, the globetrotting racing queen that she is, she's always got the little teddies of horses and, and different paraphernalia that's available that helps to market not only the sport, but that connection with fans and, and horses. It, it's quite unique, isn't it? There is. There's an emotional content, uh, uh, emotional connection to, to the racing and all the top horses. Yes, you get the dolls made and they're not always the little ones. I had one that was about this big of a horse we'll talk about in a bit, about the size of a Labrador. So um, your children would love it. They can sit on it and ride it. <laughs> um, uh, but um, there's, there's a lot of paraphernalia, a lot of um, items made to support the racing. You know? But again, it, it, it is about the horses and the racing. So, Tommy, it's beautiful respect that's shown towards the horse as, as a competitor, as well as a, a vehicle to, to bet on. There's that there's that true respect for them as a as a part of the sport as a as a warrior out on the field. Yeah, um, I think so. It um, like Duncan said that people really um, the people go to races because they love horses and they want to cheer horses and also jockeys. If you go to um, the race course, you see uh, the push toys, but it's also an um, parade ring. They people come. 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock, or maybe not, not 10 o'clock, maybe like 8 o'clock in the morning to get the best spot and to put the banners um, around the truck um, parade ring. It's for, you know, cheering the jockeys or cheering certain stables or cheering certain horses. Sounds like an amazing atmosphere and 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 so, somewhere where the sport is, is truly celebrated, which I think is something you've both captured beautifully. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started, and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. Something else I've noticed about Japanese racing is that there's a real want to, to be the best. And not only you know within the jurisdiction of Japan, but, but also globally and from my bits and pieces of research and the information that you've both provided, we can track that back to, well, we thought it was going to be one horse, Duncan, called Takai Shuttle, but Satomi's come in and she's thrown another spanner in the works as far as uh, Japan's early globe trotters are concerned. Yes, Satomi's shown her expertise of, of the field by, I, I, was, uh, so I had a roundabout connection with a horse called Taiki Shuttle, who I thought was Japan's first overseas group one winner and that was in the 1990s but Satomi reminded me that uh, 
at Deauville at the same race meeting, a horse called Seeking the Pearl, also out of Japan, won a group one about seven days before Taiki Shuttle. What sort of time frame are we talking about here? This is 1994, I think, Satomi, is, is, uh, is the end of the year? Yeah, I think it's 1994. Yeah, I think so. There was plenty happening in that that sort of era in Japanese racing. We'll talk about one of the the big names that became a breed shaper that was just coming to coming into his own at that sort of time. But, Duncan, neither of these horses, Seeking the Pearl or, or Taiki Shuttle, were Japanese bred they had an international influence but not as we would probably know it in an era of shuttle stallions how did they come to be how did they come come to end up in japan well the the, the system wasn't actually um i made a first some trips to hokkaido in the early 1990s um, a very good friend of mine who i'd worked with in both kentucky and in scone uh, john woods he actually became godfather to my son he was one of the first gaijin to get a job as a stud manager up in up in Hokkaido. Um, and what's a, a gaijin? Gaijin is a foreigner. It could be oh, okay. it could be American, could be Australian, could be Kiwis, but yeah, all together okay. it's a gaijin. Yeah. So the Japanese were investing in getting expertise into their field to to raise the level of their product, uh, much as they've probably done in the automotive industry. They've watched what the others do, they've copied it defined it, refined it, replicated it, and in, in, the, in the hope of improving it. And I think that's what the Japanese were doing in that era. They were getting foreigners, white people in to come and assist in their industry, show them how to do it. So um, my friend, John Woods, he was contact, uh, contracted through a fellow called Harry Sweeney, who is an Irishman who's very famous in Japan. Um, he's actually one of the, the very first white men or gaijin to actually get a JRA owner's license. Um, okay. And to show the significance of that, that it's taken Sheikh Mohammed many, 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 many years to be allowed to have a JRA owner's license. And Harry Sweeney, I think, was the first and only white man to do so. So evolving that story, uh, John Woods was contracted by Harry to take over running a Taiki Farms. Um, they, their model was to go to America and buy the yearlings. Uh, they perceived at that time that the American yearlings were probably the forerunners of the quality in the world. They brought them back through Ireland. They broke them in in Ireland. And then they shipped them back to Japan, back to the farms uh, to race in Japan. And the very best of them, as we've just seen with Taiki Shuttle, was obviously off Taiki Farm, uh, seeking the pearl. They were the first ones they deemed good enough to send overseas and to challenge and show that the Japanese horses were uh, viable group one winning racehorse. So was that something of a, I guess, a, a fork in the road? Was that the, Were they the test cases, those first two horses, that they were confident enough in them that we think these horses are pretty good, we think they're world-class. Let's test that now, perhaps, before we take the next step with our breeding programs? I believe so. I don't think that, obviously, uh, the JRA put a lot of support behind the owners of these horses getting them overseas, and they probably filtered out to make sure that the right horses that went overseas made an impact, you know, made a deep impact. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, that, that going back to the, the Japanese were investing in technology, um, personnel. Um, my, my visits to Taiki Farms, I actually met a young Australian called Philip Stokes, who <laughs> at the time was the pre-trainer. So he was pre-training these Taiki horses. Um, and 
even now I still have a connection with Philip. We still have horses in training with Philip. I think we've got, we've got an Adelaide Cup winner, good idea, who's racing this coming weekend in the Herbert Power. But um, Philip's now a leading trainer and is still training for us here in Australia. But I first met him in, uh, in Hokkaido as pre-trainer at Taiki Farms. There are a few Australians that find their way over to, to Japan. We've obviously, the jockeys have had really good success recently. Damien Lane and Craig Williams and Hugh Bowman having great success over there. But like Philip Stokes, there's been quite a, a number of trainers, sort of veterinary staff, people that are working with horses now and quite prominent that have they've spent time in Japan and done really, really well. Yes, I uh, think they yeah. were suck the expertise from these people uh, and learn to grow their own their own and better their own industry which is what they've done yeah they're just quite a 19 probably 1990s 90 was a, a time that racing was booming and also the economy was so good so the, a lot of um farms uh, hired people from overseas um, lots of irish lots of australians and kiwis working in in japan at that time and as um, they developed the skills in Japan, they influenced setting up the pre-training centers um, and the veterinarian skills and dentistry skills improved. There's one very good Australian dentist is still working there, doing, doing a really good job. What about the local labor market, Satomi, the Japanese staff, I guess, that are involved in racing? It's been a hot topic in Australian racing for probably the best part of two years through COVID, is it easy to find racing staff in Japan? Is it an industry that people want to be involved in? No, it's the same. The um, industry is suffering the shortage of staff in Japan as well. It's hard to find a good workers. I guess it's a labor-intensive, long hours. So there are a lot of um, international riders and workers coming from um, India, Pakistan, Malaysia, South America. I guess that's the same in, in Australia, that um, it is hard to find a good workers um, in Japan. So, Tommy, what can you tell us about the Yoshida family? It's it's a name that's known worldwide, and it's I guess it's the first racing name that sort of comes to mind for most Australian thoroughbred fans when they think of Japan and Japanese racing. When did the Yoshidas start to come to prominence in, in Japanese racing and breeding? I think that um, probably the most famous um, Yoshida person is Katsumi, who comes to Australia um, very often and owns horses uh, in Australia. And his father, um, Zenya, was the person who bought um, the Northern Taste and also um, Sunday Silence from America. And that definitely changed the um, breeding industry in Japan. Had and Zenya had exposure to racing sort of anywhere else in the world or was he just a, a passionate Japanese person that believed in, in the sport? What, what sort of spurred his, his interest in the game? I think he, he had a horse, he had a farm, or he set up the farm in America and um, had a, a few horses in the Europe as well. I think it's what he wanted to do is to breed the best horses to um, represent Japan and compete in the world. I mean, I, I can't really say very much because I 
I don't know him in person. I didn't meet him um, before he you know, passed away a long time ago, but that's what I can feel from his sons, you know, mm. the Katsumi and then other two sons, um, very much into trying to breed the best horses that they they can. Duncan, it sounds very much like the great Australian family racing dynasties, the Cummings, the Freedmans, the Smiths and the Waterhouses, that that passion, it comes, it's almost in their blood and, and that want to further the sport, it's so evident. Have you visited Northern Farm and, and their facilities, not only their breeding facilities, but the training facilities as well? I have. I've been privileged enough to go to those farms and I actually went there when Sunday Silence was still alive. Um, and even the, the pre-training and training facilities, they build indoor gallops, indoor gallops. There's a famous one that goes uphill. And I remember going, there's a training track just outside of Hokkaido. Um, so Tommy can probably correct me if I'm wrong. But on the top of the hill, they they constructed a track on the top of the hill and went downhill to try and replicate Epsom because wow. they had they had and they did send a couple of horses over to run an English derby but one of the early models was and maybe they'd heard the story about the, the wooden post at Epsom is the, is the epicenter of the breeding world but they had designed this track to try and replicate Epsom so that horses could train there and be accustomed to the downhill Tatton corner so that's the level of of uh, investment in time, technology, and what have you, and I think you'll find a lot of a lot of the modern day equipment, uh, scanning machines, there were magneto pulses, all those things emanated through Japanese technology and trial and error. Some of them worked, some of them were, you know, big white elephants, but they went down all these paths to try to improve everything they could do. Yeah, the famous uphill course has a roof over it too because it, it snows a lot, so it's protected from the snow. Amazing. That, that is absolutely incredible. Like we joke about uh, the recent rain in Sydney and, you know, I've heard some absolute harebrained schemes about roofing, you know, racetracks in Sydney to, you know, protect them from the rain, but it's a training centre in Japan actually has gone to those lengths. Well, yeah. Fuchu, which is their main race course, it's their Flemington or their Ramwick. Um, I remember clearly when we went up uh, with Bart, he was just amazed at the amount of underground tunnels. The horses would go underground through miles and miles of tunnels and they would come up at the various tracks that they were going to work on, gallop or race. So everything went underground and came back up at the appropriate point on the track. And yeah. you could drive, you could literally drive a bus through these tunnels. Um, but that's the level of detail that they went into to try and create the best. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started, and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers, and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at The Stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. 
IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Well, you, of course, saintly went to Japan and, and for a Japan, uh, Japan Cup campaign and, and famously didn't quite get there. But Bart was there as well with you. What were some of his observations about Japanese racing and, and training, if you'd like to share some? Well, he was in love with the tunnels. And for a long time, he had promoted that they built a tunnel at Ramwick, which they now have some decades after Bart first bringing it up. Um, one of the arguments of not being able to build a tunnel at Ranwick was that it was below the water table. So when it was pointed out that the Channel Tunnel and the Harbour Tunnel go below, below, below the water table, <laughs> the technology is there to build these tunnels. So years later, but Bart loved the tunnels. And we spent ages snooping around. We were sort of put in the visitors' barns, but we did our best to, 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 to infiltrate and go to places we weren't allowed to go and see what we could see. Were there any aspects of the training from you know the, the local trainers that he took interest in, or did he not? Was he not uh, letting letting the cat out of the bag with what he was noticing? Oh, that they they had a lot of European vets there. Yeah, um, and they were sort of they were the the masters to the apprentices, the apprentices, the Japanese vets were then the apprentices. So a lot of lot of European and American vets. Um, so a lot of treatments that even with the the American vets. Bart was not familiar with in Australia with the Australian vet. So uh, there was a lot there to be observed and learned um, if, you, if you were patient enough to keep your eyes open and ask questions. Well, surely a trainer like Bart Cummings and a horse like Saintly, like, it's a pretty big deal, a horse like that coming over to contest a Japan Cup. I, I assume that the JRA would have been very forthcoming with hospitality and whatnot through the journey. You would have been very well looked after. Oh, we were put up in a very large hotel in the centre of Tokyo. I think it was uh, an all Nippon, but I can't remember. Um, but they put on a bus, but the bus ride from central Tokyo to Fuchu, which wasn't actually many miles, took many hours because of the traffic. Um, so we were shuttled back and forth morning and afternoon to the track. Um, yes, they, they, they went to great lengths to create hospitality and to look after these horses, you know. Um, the horses like Singspiel with Sir Michael Stout, where he won the race in the end. Um, so there, there, there was a lot of lot of effort put in to accommodate both human and horses, but um, there was also a slight side to make sure the locals could be as competitive as they could be. Now, I believe there's a, a story that might have left you and the travelling party a, a little bit short when the horse was scratched and you found yourself at a dinner potentially that, that might have got a little bit, well, not out of hand, but might have had a few interesting looks around the table. Well, we did have a problem because the entourage, Datto and Datin Tan came, uh, Darren Beban and Kim Beban, his wife came, Val came with Bart. I was a friend of both Bart and Datto, Tony Jing came and I went, but I was on my own. So we, um, decided to try and drown our sorrows when we were scratched and we went to, had a booking in the top of this hotel so we went to the restaurant on the top of the hotel and if you know these flash hotels the most expensive restaurant is always the one at the top <laughs> so we had this lovely meal 
But the problem was we hadn't raced. Darren hadn't earned any money. Dado hadn't earned any money. So we had a real big problem. Who was going to pay for this very expensive meal? Ah. So it was decided we all go Dutch and each person would pay for their husband and wife. Well, I was lonesome. So I was, I was paying for two people, but only eating for one. <laughs> and uh, it got down to the wire. I still remember it that Kim Beaven bought out the calculator. To, to, to chop the bill up appropriately because nobody was prepared to overpay for their share. I am absolutely stoked that the age-old problem of a uh, of a dinner sponsor it, it didn't escape even the great Bart Cummings and Dado Tanchinam. Well, we all assumed the horse was going to race well and Dado would be shouting, <laughs> but it was a little bit unfair that there was there was there was no prize money, no glory, no nothing. So it was each to their own. So Tony, let's talk about. Sunday Silence, we, we mentioned him briefly a moment ago. He is the great breed shaper, isn't he, in Japanese yes. racing? Yeah, he is amazing. Yeah, and it's a quite amazing story behind it too, that um, this breeder trying to sell him, couldn't sell him, raced him, and as of course, it's an amazing racehorse. And then after the racing career, he trying to syndicate in, your, in, in the States, but couldn't do very well and ended up um, selling the horse to Japan. And that horse became, yeah, it's a breed shaper. For, for younger listeners that aren't familiar with Sunday Science's deeds on the track, he won the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness Stakes and the Breeders' Cup Classic in 1989. And then he went to start in the USA, but he, he didn't really set the world alight there, did he? Japan was was the second chance for him. Um, that's what I've heard too, yeah. Um, and that's... What I was told that uh, yeah they couldn't syndicate, so therefore the horse was sold to uh, Mr. Shida. What do you think it is about Sunday Silence that that made him so successful in Japan? Why did he work there and have such an influence? Why did he work there? Maybe because he was true athlete, but he wasn't a heavy horse. Like heavy means that. Um, not as strong, but it's not a um, a big, heavy horse. He's a very athletic horse, and then I think that worked in Japan because um, racing in Japan it's all about speed, um, and then you have to have a, a stamina to go through um, with speed to contain, you know, maintain the speed. And I think that worked with the Sunday Silence signers uh, did that. Duncan, it's almost like the f- who can be fastest for longest, isn't it? It's not like it's, Australia where you stop and start. It's sustained speed. You know, mm. you'll, you'll, you'll never, you watch those Japanese races, you won't see horses pulling because they're rolling. Uh, but uh, Japan has embraced races from a mile and a quarter, 2,000 metres and up. Um, you know, they frequently have classic two-mile races, not just the Melbourne Cup. So it takes a horse that can run those trips, but also run them at a a fast rate. So I think the combination of that, uh, typically their tracks are very firm and fast to suit that type of racing. And that has, I suppose, evolution has determined that the strong, the fast, and the fleet-footed and the tough survive in Japan. And that is what has aided the development of their breeding industry, that the, that the, the wallflowers don't survive. Mm. And Sunday Silence, of course, he's had such an, a, a, a massive influence 
in Japan and then as a result with the progeny racing internationally, a huge influence globally, but Deep Impact, without doubt, has been his most famous offspring, a, a fantastic racehorse. But then his impact, pun intended, uh, has been quite phenomenal, hasn't it? Almost, would you say, Duncan, exceeding what Sunday Silence has done? Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, he's had some of the best racehorses around the world in, in, in all types of arenas. Um, and Satomi can tell us how much they're still paying for these deep impacts. So, yeah. uh, they, you know, they sell them as foals for, for the cost of an apartment block here in Australia. Um, so he, he has, he's got an enduring legacy. He's their Saddles Wells. He's their Satristram. He's their Daniel. Um, mm. he, he's, he's the most prepotent source of, of quality bloodstock in, in Japan. Um, and obviously now it's important, like we're seeing a lot of Danzig Danehill duplication. They've got to they've got to provide some outcrosses to get that blood to flow through all, all, all lineages. Would that be right, Satomi? Bringing uh, in some outcrosses. Yes, I think so. He's he's a quite amazing stallion. He was a quite amazing stallion and um, loved, absolutely loved by the breeders and also the racing fans. What made him so successful, Satomi? What, what do you think were his attributes as well as obviously who his sire was and, and, and that potency, but what, what was so special about Deep Impact as a racehorse and as a stallion? He probably um, carried very similar aspect from the Sunday Silence that um, he was a very athletic horse. He wasn't a big horse. He was only racing for 400 maybe 440, 450 kilos when he was racing. And if you see him, um, if you saw him straight after the races, you just can't believe how plain or small he is um, compared to the horses that you know you used to see, you've seen in Australia. But he was just a true, um, true athlete, very competitive. Um, and he probably that kind of matched um, with a lot of horses in Japan, uh, broodmares in Japan. And as well as the seeing the, the great racehorses from Japan come to Australia, Satomi, and, and being witness to their terrific performances, Australia's also benefited from great relationships between Japanese studs and Australian studs, and, and namely Arafield. They've been at the top of uh, that list in, in pushing that relationship. And now we have sires like Maurice, who's doing so well in Australia, uh, coming in and furthering the breed uh, and expanding that reach again. Yes. Um, so it, it's great that the Japanese racehorse is doing really well when they race in Australia, because that's kind of helping um, stallions that are coming from Japan to Australia. And it's indeed, um, yeah, Maurice is fantastic. It's great to see he's um, winning. Um, group races and been very competitive. What do you think of the Japanese stallions that have been out here, Duncan? Obviously, Maurice is, is proving himself to be very potent, but we've got Satono Aladdin in New Zealand as well That's that looks like he's going to go a similar direction. The, the, the stallions that have interested me that are uh, basically Japanese bred and raced are the ones that they've also decided to take and race overseas, typically of the last few that have come, they've raced in the Hong Kong international races, they've been victorious. So they've shown that they can race 
in, in circumstances similar to ours, um, but they're also the best of their best or near the best of their best. Um, and I've taken that on board um, this year at two of the sales, I bought the highest priced bowl by Neorealism, um, I can hardly say it, Neorealism. Uh, and like the first crop of the Magic Millions and Simulator, I bought the highest priced real steel at the classic sale in Sydney. Um, maybe driven to do so because I can't buy all the Iron Invincibles, they're far too expensive. But the, these are stallions I'm very much uh, keen to, to follow, keen to get involved with. We've touched on Maurice and how well he's going. So I think the platform, the example, the example is there that the Japanese bred and raced horse that's competed overseas and proven himself, and that's now available to produce yearlings in Australia. They're a very interesting concept. Absolutely. And I know a couple of FBA members have been over to Japan for Japanese sales recently, uh, Lenny Russo and Bluegrass. I know he's bought a couple of horses, I think, out of the foal sale and has, has transported them back here and, and they're not far off uh, hitting the track. And Satomi, you're going back to Japan very soon for a series of sales over there. Tell us what you'll be doing at those sales. Um, yes, I'm going to a mare sale and also Northern Farm mix sale. That's the end of October. Um, it's it's a difficult to find a stakes winning mares, fillies and mares um, at the sales, but you can find a, a well-bred young mares um, in a good price. And I think there will be a good outcross with Australian stallions. So hoping to find it. Um, a good type of horses. So I'm looking forward to being there. Absolutely. Sounds exciting. We love those new uh, dam lines, don't we, Duncan, coming in, whether they're from America or Europe or, or Japan. There's, it's a world of opportunity. Well, Sunday Silence, Halo Line, it's, that's a very good mix with, uh, with our pretensity of the, the Danzig, Danehill, that line. Um, so what's worked well in Japan is, is, is mixing well, I think, with the local population here, you know. Um, they bought the best from overseas, fine-tuned it. Now they're exporting them. Quite a bit like the cars, really. Yeah, absolutely. Also, Tommy's off to Japan to, to buy broodmares. Where will you be in the next month or so? Will we see you at Flemington or Caulfield for, for Carnival time or the Valley? Um next few months so i'll be traveling uh yeah japan and then another overseas trip and back to japan um i'll be and then i'll be racing um the different brand week i probably won't go to victoria this year but um yeah it's, it's a busy season coming ahead surely you'll make it down duncan for cup day or cox plate day we're lucky at the moment that we've got we've got what I think is the favourite for the Oaks and So Dazzling. So she's yeah. got a guaranteed entry by winning the Oaks trial. So hopefully she turns up fit and well on Oaks Day. Um, we've got horses racing, two horses racing at Caulfield on Saturday. One is um, Victorian trained by the Philip Stokes, but the other's a Sydney trained horse. John Thompson has gone down. Uh, and I think Looking at the weather at Ramwick as we speak now, some of the horses we were planning to run over the next two weekends at Ramwick might find themselves in Victoria looking for a drier tracks. Well, that's good for us down here to see as much quality as we can get in Victoria during the carnival. That'd be fantastic. It'd be great to see 
you down here, Duncan, during the carnival. Best of luck with your runners and your, and your clients over the spring. And to Tommy, best of luck for the upcoming trips to Japan and and elsewhere around the world. Let's uh, let's hope for good fortune and good buying and good results for the pair of you. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us, Mick. And thanks to you for listening to the shortlist. And remember, if you'd like assistance with anything related to the purchase or trade of thoroughbred bloodstock, whether it's here in Australia, in Japan, or anywhere in the world, FBA agents go anywhere and will do anything to make sure you get the right horse to suit your budget. Visit bloodstockagents.com.au and get in touch with an FBA member.